Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to this episode of Compliance Clarified. My name is Alexander Robson and I am the Managing Editor of Regulatory Intelligence here in London. Today, I'm joined by Lindsay Rogerson, Senior Editor in London, and Rachel Walcott, Senior Editor in London. And we are here to discuss the Edinburgh reforms announced by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt on December the 9th and their implications for the financial services industry. The reforms might not be Big Bang 2.0 as trailed in some of the media or have been written in Edinburgh, rather very much in Westminster. Some of them go beyond the scope of this podcast, such as levelling up and encouraging investment in the economy, and we'll leave the politics of this to others to chew over. There are, however, some potentially, and that word is doing a lot of heavy lifting there, significant changes to senior management accountability and revisions to onshored European rules and regulations post-Brexit, among others. Some of the rules go back to the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008, so it does not seem unreasonable to revisit them. But that depends in what form. In any case, the UK wrote most of these rules when it was an EU member state, and the European Commission is also reviewing some of the post-crisis financial architecture. 2023 will be a busy time for compliance officers as they engage with the detail of any changes. We thought we'd start today with an overview of the changes relevant to listeners of this podcast and look at any mooted changes to the senior managers regime introduced nearly seven years ago. Any effort at watering down these rules might be a case of be careful what you wish for. There have been several very big regulatory fines in recent weeks and the Treasury Select Committee has MPs on it who think these rules should be strengthened and not loosened. Lindsay. Rachel, hello. You've both written a good deal about the Edinburgh reforms and the events leading up to them. Lindsay, I'd like to start with you. Briefly, what are the main reforms as far as listeners to this podcast are concerned and why are they being consulted on now? Hi, Alex. It's good to be back on the podcast. So the main reforms, many of them won't sound new to our listeners. Many of them have been on the financial regulatory grid for some time. Why are we talking about them now? Because they've been pulled together, I guess, in an effort to give them some coherence, which is welcome, unquestionably welcome, um, rather than the kind of piecemeal drip drip that we've had thus far. So what we have are basically a, a list of everything they want to get done. Now, there are some quite detailed uh, consultations behind a couple of them, as we'll come on to discuss. Others at this point are sadly more than a sentence um, with promises in the future. And so I, I do think it's important. It, well, absolutely, industry and compliance and policy teams have to be engaging with what there is there now. You know, this is going to be your your workload for 2023 is, is keeping a track of these when they do come out because you don't want to miss your opportunity. So just very briefly, I will pick out the, the ones that are most relevant. So the ring fencing one has been well trailed. 
perhaps not so relevant for, for our listeners, but the consultation promises and another consultation. So this one is just about tweaking some of the rules, lifting the cap requirements from um, 25 to 35. But there is a promise in there of alignment with other regulations and um, also perhaps scrapping it altogether in the future. So it's one to watch. The short selling regulation, well, this has been looked at already in the EU space. So the UK is kind of playing a bit of catch up here. It's important to say that the UK didn't use the short selling regulation in the COVID crisis when many other European countries did. So it would argue that actually it could get by without introducing a short selling ban. And that is one of the questions in the short selling call for evidence. It's not a, it's not a consultation. It's a call for evidence. And equally, there is a, there are, there's another question in there about do we need a ban at all? And what would we do if we didn't have it? Uh, you know, et cetera. So a lot in that call for evidence and it is call for evidence. So you need to back up what you're going to say, you know, with, with some evidence. Uh, you know, that's an important one not to be, not to be missed. I know we're going to come on to the SMCR in a bit. So I'll just skip over that one for the time being. Um, then we have the much promised PRIPS, uh, review, which is, I have to say there is a lot for people to engage with in this one. The separate regimes for various different investment products has always been irksome and it came about because of the way the European Union deals with uh, financial services files. So we have a separate regime for uh, USITs than we did for package retail and insurance-based products and PRIPs. I don't need to remind anyone listening to this that the PRIPs Cost-benefit analysis and key disclosure documents have been controversial from the offset, although both the EU and the FCA have actually claimed that it was more fund managers couldn't do sums than there was anything wrong with the regulation. Anyway, that is now history. The PRIPS is being reviewed. They're going to align with USIT, so it will be one set of key information that goes out to investors. But crucially, and I would say this is where um, you know firms will perhaps want to engage most is they are looking at how in a world where people buy things on their mobile phones and on tablets, how you can do disclosure and how you can best do warnings, etc. And so, you know, that's a really interesting, meaty discussion to get into and, um, you know, respond to in that consultation. Likewise, if we come on to the Consumer Credit Act consultation, there is a, a section in there as well about how if you know if people are buying uh, debt products on their mobile phones uh, you know how do we warn how do we disclose so you know or, or even how do you sell in, in a mobile phone? so again meaty questions to, to engage with there uh, what will perhaps be tougher for the government to get through is they're not proposing banning some of the key protections such as section 75 which is the one that ensures you get a refund if your products goods and services don't turn up or are faulty etc but the the questions are open-ended so equally the um rules around unenforceability of credit contracts they're they're open-ended questions so you you, you should really go in and look at those and I think, I mean, I know we'll come on to discuss the prospectus regulation, which again, there's no detail behind that at the moment and, and various other ones. I mean, I think the most eye-catching proposal for compliance officers will be uh, any review to the SMR. How onerous is it now? Is rowing back realistic? Most of the complaints from firms ab about it seem to relate to the time to get authorizations processed. Uh, or is there something here that needs addressing, do you think, Lindsay? I guess 
there are various things in the SMCR that need addressing. Um, whether reviewing, and this is a review, as yet we don't see that we don't have any details of it. It's promised by March. This is exactly. a review of the regime. And as you say, Alex, it's it's only natural that the regime should be reviewed. Um, I have to say, if it had been a piece of European legislation, it would already have been reviewed twice by now because they build in those automatic review periods into their their consultations. So the fact that it's taken the government seven years to get around to reviewing this, it's about time it's done. But what then is wrong or right with the SMCR? So um, if you look to the PRA's own review that they did at the five-year mark, which is two years old now, um, it said that it was kind of job done. It liked the way um, firms were it was mostly job done. I'm being a bit unfair. It was mostly job done. It, um, you know, in putting in place those responsibility maps in uh, for senior managers, in even just that mapping exercise, um, which you could argue should always have been there. But anyway, it was it was put in place for this. They found that you know people were now you know taking a better watch on the areas that they were supposed to be responsible for. However. The issue, as we've reported with the SMCR, is it's not just the lack of senior managers, and we're not alone in, in, in saying this. You know, as you as you said, loads of people criticise this, whether it's lawmakers, it's not just the Treasury Select Committee, the House of Lords. Every time a piece of financial services legislation comes to them, manages to go over this ground again. And I'm sure when the Financial Services and Markets Bill hits the House of Lords very shortly. Um, it will come up again. Those kind of heads on spikes, which was what the lawmakers wanted after the financial crisis, that's never happened. But that's not to say it should happen. But what is missing is there's a distinct lack of data here. So you mentioned authorizations. There was a recent exchange of letters like two weeks ago between the PRA, the FCA and the city minister, Andrew Griffin, about how the FCA is going to demonstrate accountability um, with metrics in the future. And it kind of it was kind of waffle, the responses. It was like, we're still working on this. We think we'll give something in this area, but there's no kind of, it, there's no nothing hard and fast there yet. So if the regulators believe that SMCR is working, they are going to have to start producing hard data sets to support it and hand them over in the new accountability world that we are in post-Brexit. Um, and I, you know, we've discussed on podcasts before, I mentioned in the article that um, we're running this week on the Edinburgh reforms, but the the regulators don't collect certain pieces of data or while on the surface supposedly collecting it, they don't collect it in a way that they can actually collect it or collate it rather. So, And a key one there is firms are supposed to report to the regulators um, how many of their senior managers or accredited individuals they discipline in any year. And what action they've taken, whether it's, you know, the uh, much promoted uh, clawback of salary or demotions, etc. You know, there isn't actually any data on that. The PRA did it as a one-off exercise for that five-year review and they can't do it, they say, um, because this information isn't centralised. Even though their rules say it should be, it's not. And so there's a huge mess to kind of unpick there. Rachel, I mean, I, I, when we wrote that article about the step up required to actually get enforcement over the line, I know we, we had some interesting stats. I don't know if, if, if you wanted to share. I would say that firms might complain about the time it takes for senior managers to be authorized, but they really shouldn't complain that much because 
neither the PRA nor the FCA have rejected a single applicant between 2016 and 2021. And not not only that, they've been very busy onshoring all the Brexit rules, the rules, rules post-Brexit. <laughs> yeah. so they have been very, very busy. Well, they haven't rejected anybody. And there have been some people who withdrew their applications. Uh, so for the PRA, it was 547 out of 7,200. So that's 547 withdrew. The FCA over the same time period approved 13,700 SMF applications and about 1,100 were withdrawn. The FCA has given us different information about how many SMF applications have been rejected. It said this year that 200 SMFs have been rejected since 2016, but when they responded up to our FOI, they said nobody had. So, you know, yes, applications take a long time to process, but that's not the regime's fault. I mean, due diligence on senior people is really important, and firms should want to avoid reputation risk that bringing on somebody who you haven't looked in there to see what kind of skeletons are in their closet might bring. I'm not going to name any names, but I think everybody can think of one UK retail bank or where that was a big problem. And my guess is that the industry sees SMR as a barrier to attracting talent. But again, another side to that is that the you know ongoing culture and reputation problems in financial services mean that the best and the brightest grads don't necessarily view financial services as a destination and that people talk about how Gen Z individuals uh, are more interested in purpose and values when they're uh, considering whether or not to take a job. And financial services, despite its marketing, it hasn't really delivered on that for a lot of job candidates. And, you know, just in terms of implementation of SMCR, Lindsay talked about the PRA review, but, you know, what the people we talk to say is that there's some firms that were really engaged with SMR and others that just went through the motions. So there's going to be firms that did a good job on this and there'll be good practices and learning. Hopefully some of that will come out of any review. And then there are going to be poor practices. And I think some of the poor practices will be about the responsibility mapping and assigning SMF responsibilities and describing SMF responsibilities. And we've seen that in some of the final notices where they say, well, or at least it's been said that the reason why nobody was held accountable for bad activity was there was a lot of turnover or, you know, you couldn't really pin it, pin the problem to one person. And the last thing I'd say about this is that going into a, or we're in an economic downturn, firms are going to be looking harder at different ways to make money. They might be cutting costs in compliance and signaling to the market that conduct and culture and accountability are too onerous is just not the message to be sending at this time. Mark Stewart leaves in probably early spring next year. 
in his role as director of enforcement. And I'm sure he is as keen to settle as many historic cases as he can before he leaves. And there have been, Rachel, you've written about a lot of fines recently, which have involved behavior going back before the SMR started, overlapping with the SMR, and yet senior managers haven't been banned. Politicians are starting to take a lot more notice because this is coming up at the Treasury Committee. Do you think there's anything here to watch? Well, what I've been hearing is that because enforcement action takes so long that some of these SMR cases are only now coming through out of the other end of the process. But we've been seeing some other things too, like today, two senior managers at Metro Bank were fined, but those fines were referred to the upper tribunal. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, NatWest and HSBC got a lot of flack, or the FCA got a lot of flack for not holding any senior managers accountable, anti-money laundering failures at HSBC and NatWest, as well as now Santander. But, you know, an underlying thing there is also high turnover in the MLRO uh, spots, which is another thing to talk about completely. On the Santander one, so there was a line in that final notice that said, to, for the absence of doubt, you know, we don't find any individual responsible for anything here. And so, but there is no explanation beyond that. And so I asked the FCA last week, like, can you please explain that? You know, there's a, it's a gaping hole in this final notice. And because um, there was an overlap with the senior managers, albeit only 18 months, but there was an overlap. I, I've, I've yet to hear anything back from them, um, you know, and I've chased it. So, you know, if, if they're unwilling to explain to journalists, you know, their, their reasoning and their thinking, you know, it, it's this, it just adds to this on the regulatory accountability side, the point we were making, there's so much more that the regulators need to do if they want to convince everybody the SMCR is working. Just to, you know, your point, Alex, about the time lag on enforcement, you know, as um, as we've discussed before, as regular listeners will know, um, I've been covering whistleblowing uh, tribunals um, since I started here five years ago, and they repeatedly um, highlight senior manager misconduct. Um, at the very top level, we've had judges say, um, auditor, chief auditors can't do audits. We've had senior people warned not to lie to the trans, you know, um, perjury warnings issued. We, you know, we've had senior managers at Wells Fargo, Alex, you'll remember, who admitted under oath that they didn't know the rules they were supposed to be responsible for, you know, in and of itself a breach of financial services rules. Um, we've had just very recently a very senior manager at um, a challenger bank. The tribunal uh, judgment said that he had mistreated an employee with a disability. So, I mean, yes, I mean, these are all post-2016 cases. Yes, there's a huge backlog in enforcement actions, but none of these individuals have, we've never seen any uh, actions brought against these people. And so to my point about the regulator needing to explain what is is doing, I, I, I'll just leave it there. There are a new set of FCA board minutes out last week that we could put in the show notes. And it talks about the RDC, the Regulatory Decisions Committee, looking for a little more guidance potentially on how to deal with non 
financial misconduct, which discrimination against a disabled person would be. The issue potentially could be that without a conviction, like we had with, well, they had some sex offenders who were uh, convicted in court two years ago, or without that kind of conviction, I think it is very hard to hold people accountable under the regime. And like I said, we can put the links to the latest uh, board minutes in the show notes, but I think that is a little indication of some of the barriers between uh, the aspiration of SMR and accountability and the conduct rules and the reality. Okay, I think that probably covers it for now on the SMR. Watch this space. I'm not sure we're going to expect a huge amount of change, but uh, let's see. Lindsay, anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, just one final thing, um, which could cause problems for the uh, regulators, depending on what shape this SMCR consultation says. The SMCR has been used by the Financial Conduct Authority in particular to underpin key pieces of financial services rules which are coming. So it underpins the consumer duty. The ability to hold senior managers to account for for the mistreatment of consumers is central to that huge piece of financial services reform, which is set to kick in in July next year. So there's an issue there. Likewise, the consultations for the um, CCA and PRIPS um, both assume that the SMCR is going to be there as that foundational piece of accountability in those regimes. So it, it will be interesting to see <laughs> what happens depending on how the SMCR is tinkered with. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Right. Rachel, you've written a good deal about wholesale markets regulation, MIFID 2, crypto and AI, and machine learning all get a mention here. I mean, there's been lots well-trailed on reforms to research, but even the Europeans are looking at that. What have you found? Well, the wholesale markets review response, which encompasses a lot of the MIFID reforms, has been out since March this year. So all of this has been on the table for months. And I think earlier in the year, the joke we were making was about this line when parliamentary time allows. So I think that joke might still be valid. Oh, it'll be interesting to see, given the huge amount of uh, legislative work that the parliament hasn't been able to get done this year, is going to be rolling over into the next year, whether we're still going to be talking about making legislation to implement the wholesale markets review at the end of next year. We'll see. But anyway, like I said, none of it's really new. There are a couple of little interesting bits and pieces in there. So one is this new T plus one task force that, well, that's what I'm calling it. It's, <laughs> it's a accelerating uh, trade settlement was basically, can we settle trades faster? Is that a uh, competitive advantage? I think everybody is looking at this to be fair. They're committing to having a regime for a UK consolidated tape in place by 2024. So that doesn't mean that they're going to have a consolidation by 2024. That just means they're committing to having one by then. So there's another little nugget in there about this. They were in the wholesale market review, they were looking at a way to, and this is something that's being done in the EU as well. They're looking at 
uh, a way to allow smaller companies, SMEs, micro SMEs to access the equity markets. And they talk about a new kind of venue that they would seek to trial, which is called an intermittent trading venue to help concentrate liquidity at prescribed intervals to benefit uh, smaller quoted businesses. So uh, basically they were saying this would address the problem that firms list and then there's no liquidity so nobody's trading in them. You know, some of the uh, changes in the wholesale market review and uh, this uh, intermittent trading idea could deliver on some of the reforms in terms of access to capital and attracting uh, tech companies to list here that were recommended in the Khalifa review. But to be honest, there could be a lot more for the government to do on digital finance. And I feel like, well, I do wonder if we were, were concentrating too much on crypto, that we're sort of interested in uh, one part of fintech in one minute, and then we get distracted by crypto. Alongside the Edinburgh reforms, the Treasury announced it's going to be bringing in some crypto regulation. They're going to be consulting on crypto regulation. And the, the problem here is that crypto now is at a moment, kind of at a tipping point. And are we going to continue with this Wild West scenario that's been underscored by finance and FTX and some of the other players in the market? Or former players. Yeah, former players. But are we going to be looking at the financial market infrastructure plays, the payment plays, payment plays that would be founded, would be using the central bank digital currency and uh, commercial bank digital coins as, as its foundation instead of stable coins and all these other crazy things. I think that's something to think about. One of the friends of uh, regulatory intelligence put up on his LinkedIn, this is Gavin Stewart. He said that, you know, he talked about these contradictions between the UK government approach and the FCA's uh, signaling on crypto. And I think that's something to really bear in mind here. He was saying um, the government has been talking about crypto as a real opportunity, talking about the UK becoming a crypto hub. And then we have the FCA labeling Binance as unsupervisable and rejecting you know, up to 85% of the crypto firms that were in the temporary regime for the money laundering regulations. And uh, Gavin said, all these behaviors might happily coexist, but only within a credible framework. Hopefully this consultation will provide it. <laughs> so... I think that is something to take on board right there. In terms of machine learning and AI, some of these other things, we've talked a lot about this in articles on reg intelligence about the risks around AI, uh, the risk 
so bias in algorithms, the unproven technology, as the UK uh, Information Commissioner calls it, risks around biometrics. And this is being undertaken, uh, you know, more guidance is being undertaken by, by the ICO, but there is a separate policy and work going on in government that has to do with it's coming more coming out of the Department of Media and sport and bays, not so much the treasury. People should watch to see how that unfolds. It's going pretty slowly right now. And this is another place where the EU thinking is uh, much further advanced, especially when it comes around to some of the risks and some of the resilience issues there. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, Lindsay, before we close, anything else you'd like to say? Just one thing on the green agenda and green finance. So um, over the weekend, I've had a fair few sort of ESG green contacts, you know, uh, say that actually they were really disappointed about what was and there wasn't any substance to the green. Rishi Sunak is, you know, very clear he wants the UK to be this green finance hub. I would actually say that that is very unfair because um, the Consumer Credit Act has a couple of questions in there which are key key, absolutely key to the UK getting a handle on hitting its zero 2050 targets. Um, and they relate to green finance. So green mortgages and electric vehicles and their finance. So just to put this in context, at the moment, uh, 20% of the UK's um, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, carbon emissions come from residential property and 315 come from transport. And that's the most recent government uh, 2021 data. So that's over 50%. Now, obviously not all transport is domestic vehicles, but you know this is a huge step in the right direction if, if, we, if they can get this done. And the fact that those questions are in there, you know, I think are, is really significant and it's a really important signifier of their intent in this space. And so I just, I didn't want to let that pass without a comment because I think it's great that these things are are in there yeah well thanks gosh a lot to chew over uh and it'll be very interesting to see what makes it in the way of any meaningful reform over the next um 12 18 months that's it for today thank you Lindsay and rachel for your thoughts and until next time thanks alex thank you compliance clarified a podcast by thomson reuters regulatory intelligence